Hello and welcome to the Activate Podcast. The goal of the Activate Podcast is that our faith would be activated as we explore the Bible together and that our lives would be activated as we apply what we've learned in the Bible to our very lives, that we would activate our faith as we love God and serve people. My name is Jillian Pelkey, and if you'd like to hear more Activate podcasts, you can search on soundcloud.com under Jillian Pelkey or on iTunes and YouTube. Let's pray, and then let's dive right into the Word of God together. Jesus, I thank you that you are alive and active, that your word, the Bible, is alive and active. We thank you that it searches our very hearts, it separates our thoughts and our intentions, and it teaches us how to live for you. And God, I pray today that our hearts would be soft and our minds would be ready to hear what you would say to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and that our lives would reflect your glory, that our lives would be a shining light for all to see of the great things that you're doing in and through us. Jesus, we love you. We honor you. And today we bow before your greatness. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, two portions of scripture. One is in Numbers eleven thirty four, and the other is in Luke chapter 22, 24. We're going to start right off in Luke. Today we're going to be talking about living sim- a simplistic life, living simply. And as Americans, we have lots of things that we do that are complicated. We have lots of things that we do that we don't even see how complicated they are because it's our normal. We're used to having so many different things available to us. We're used to having so many conveniences. We don't realize how uh, unsimple our lives are. So today I want to talk about simplicity and I want to talk about um, not just practical simplicity, but the simplicity in our heart that God desires for us to have. So we're going to look uh, first here in Luke in chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 46. Now, Jesus had just done amazing things. The disciples, the 12 disciples who had walked with Jesus, followed Jesus, been with him from the very beginning, they had seen him do mighty things. They had seen him uh, raise a girl from the dead. They had seen a demon-possessed man freed. They had seen the feeding of 5,000 people. They had seen the transfiguration most of them had. They had seen a man covered in the skin disease of leprosy, completely healed. And as we pick up in Luke chapter 9, it says, as people were just amazed and talking about the great things that God had done through Jesus, Jesus took his disciples aside and, and told them, predicted his death, and said that he was going to go to the cross. But the disciples didn't understand that or grasp it. And so in 46, right after he tells them this, verse 46 says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, Jesus is just saying that he is going to die. And the first thing that these men think of is, well, who's who's the greatest? Who's going to be the leader when Jesus is gone? They didn't grasp the whole understanding of what Jesus was talking about. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a child and had him stand beside him. And then he said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. He was saying that to be great, you had to be like a child. You had to be unassuming. You had to know your place. And one of the greatest revelations that we can have as Christians is to know who God is, who the mighty God is, and who we are. 
If we can grasp that, if we could set that truth in our heart, then we can walk out our days in simplicity. We can walk out our days in reverence. We won't be vying for position with other people. We will realize that there is an equal playing field between the sons and daughters of God. And that is a high stance to stand on. We are sons and daughters of God, but we're all sons and daughters of God. So to realize who we are and who God is will radically change our lives, will free us from vying for position, will free us from striving to beat out somebody else uh, to, to get ahead. We will realize that we can rest in the fact that we are sons and daughters of the living King and that He makes all things good in His perfect timing. So He takes a child to Himself and says, become like this child. Verse 49, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. The the disciple John was not happy that somebody else had the authority and power and gift of God to drive out demons. He wasn't concerned about the person whose demon was getting driven out of him. He wasn't having compassion and love and care for that person. He was more concerned that somebody else was doing mighty things in Jesus' name. And he wanted it only for himself. So the disciples, just like us, they wanted to be the greatest and they didn't want anybody else in the inner circle. They didn't want anybody else to be and have the gifts from God that they had. We can see this reflected in our own lives. If we stop and pause and begin to think about our own lives and, and what we over time do with the gifts that God's given us. If you're a singer, if God has given you the anointing to sing so many times, you can look out and say, I'm the best singer, or why does this person think they could sing? Or we begin to think that the gifts that we have belong to us. The voice in your lungs came from God. And if he chooses to take it away, he can take it away. Some of us preach and we say, well, this person or that person can't preach. They haven't been through what I've been through or developed the way I've developed. But the Spirit of God can rest on whoever the Spirit of God wants to rest on. And we can't take the gifts of God and call them our own. They are gifts from God. Every talent, every uh, ability that we have in any area, whether it be hospitality or leadership or even motherhood or fatherhood or any type of leadership, it all comes from God. And so we can't look out and be jealous of the people around us and say, why do they get to have what I have? Well, only The only reason you have what you have is because God gave it to you. Let's take a look in the book of Numbers. Now, we're going to look way back at the called out people of Israel. The disciples were the called out people in the New Testament. They were the beginning of the called out people, and they knew that they were chosen by Jesus, the Son of God. They knew that they were... um, had a huge responsibility before them. And instead of looking at it in a humble sense, they looked at it in only us and not you. Well, we look back now at Numbers 11, and we have the called out people of God, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 300 years. And then God heard their cries and sent Moses to speak to the Pharaoh and to rescue them from their slavery. These people, this group of specific people that we're going to read about had seen God move. They had seen the Nile River in Egypt turned to blood. They had seen plagues come upon the Egyptians, but not on them. They had seen gnats and boils and frogs and many other 
things happen to the Egyptians that did not happen to them. They saw the whole land turn to darkness, except the camp where the Israelites lived. They had seen the Red Sea split in two so they could walk across on dry ground and escape from their enemies. And then as their enemies entered the dry ground, the water fell down on them, killing them all. They had seen God lead them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. They had also seen God rain down food from heaven. Manna would appear on the ground every morning. Manna was translated, what is it? And it was like a honey uh, seed that they would pick up and they would eat every day and it would sustain them with everything that they needed. We look at Numbers 11 now and we see this people, this called out people of God and all that they had seen and all that they had witnessed that God had done. And the people begin to complain, saying, this is not enough, God. This is not enough. You have rescued us from slavery. You have rescued us from our enemies. You have led us day and night. You have given us food. You have given us water. But we want more. It's not enough. We're going to pick up in Numbers 11. And in verse 24. He brought together 70 of the elders and had them stand around the tent. Moses had petitioned God. He said, the people are complaining. How am I going to handle this? How am I going to stand uh, to their complaints when I've seen you do all these things, when I know you've given us is enough? How am I going to help these people? And the Lord has Moses call out all the elders, and he brought together the 70 elders, had them stand around the tent. Verse 25, Numbers eleven twenty-five. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Elad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in a camp, in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Elad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. This is very similar to what we just read about in the book of Luke, how the disciples didn't want somebody else casting out demons in Jesus's name. Joshua also took up that same offense. Joshua had been with Moses, the man of God, since his youth. He had seen the things that God had done, and he thought they were just for him. They were just for Moses. And he didn't like the fact that God had poured out his spirit on people who hadn't gone through the same, or who weren't as willing to go through the things that he was. It said that Joshua would sit at the tent of meeting where God's presence dwelt. Even after Moses would leave, he would just continually sit there. He was after God's heart. He was positioning himself to be near God, to love God. His heart was for God. And so were the disciples. And they didn't like that somebody else would get God's spirit, that somebody else would get God's power. But we forget that God's power rests on anyone who God chooses to rest his power. So it goes on here in Numbers 11. 
in verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail, birds, in, in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits, cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. Now the people had complained to Moses. It said there were 6,000 men who asked for meat from the Lord, that all the things that God had done and the manna that he had provided and the food that he had provided was not enough for them. And now these people stood before Moses and they said, we want meat to eat. And Moses looked at them at the 600,000 men and he said to the Lord, Lord, even if I killed every cattle that was with us, even if I got every fish out of the sea, it would not be enough to feed these people. How am I going to provide? And that's when the Lord's spirit was poured out on more people than just Moses. And now quail is coming. Birds are falling from the sky on these people. Verse 32, all that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kebroth Hadadrav because they were buried, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. The translation of that is the graves of craving, the graves of craving. When what the Lord had not had given them was not enough, he filled their land with quail so much so that it was more than they could bear. It was almost comical how much quail fell. And the Lord said, don't you want to see what I can do? I'll show you what I can do. And he sent the quail. But the people were so obsessed with themselves and what they wanted and their craving that as even as they were eating it, the Lord's anger burned and people died from a plague eating the quail the graves of craving. How do we relate to these two stories? Many of us have been Christians for a very long time. We have been followers, disciples of Jesus for a very long time. And unfortunately, we can get used to the holy things of God. The things of God can become common to our lives. The things of God are our everyday reactions and our everyday reality. And so we think that we have somehow earned these great gifts from God. We think that somehow, because of our good behavior, because of our dedication to the Lord, like Joshua sitting before the tent of God, or like us cleaning the church, sitting in the church, working for people, working for God, that somehow we have earned these gifts from God, and we forget that they have come only by God's grace, not because of anything that we have done. But as Christians who have served the Lord for a long time, it's easy to fall into that camp and say, God, I know you've done all these things in the past. I know that you raised a girl from the dead. You healed a demon-possessed man. You fed 5,000 people. You healed a man with leprosy. But I want more today. If God never did another thing for you, he's already done enough. If God never did another miracle in your life, he has already done enough by sending his very own son, Jesus, by sending him as a sacrifice for every sin that you have ever committed. He has set you free from the power of sin and the power of death in your life. That's enough. That is enough. It's easy for us to point our finger at the Israelite nation and say, look at all that you saw. You saw 
miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Weren't you satisfied? And the answer is no, they weren't satisfied. They continued to want more. And the same with the disciples. And unfortunately, because we are all part of this human race, the same with us. We say, God, where I'm at, it's not enough. I'm only looking to the future. Things will be good when such and such thing happens. We have to stop and look and say, God, things are good now because you've sent your son, because I am free from every curse. I am free from every bondage. I am free from every sin that could so easily beset me. I live free. I live with the peace that passes worldly understanding. It guards my heart and it guards my mind in Christ Jesus. I am not a citizen of the United States of America. I am a citizen of heaven. And one day the clouds will split and Jesus will return and I will go and be with my God forever, for all eternity. That is enough. And this is why Jesus took a child. He said, become like this child, this innocent child who everything you give him is enough. Everything that God has given you is enough. The opposite of the graves of craving is consecration. When we consecrate ourselves, it's cutting off every evil thing. It's cutting off anything that doesn't bring glory and honor to God. And for us as American Christians, especially Christians who have been in it for a long time, most of that consecration is our attitudes. Most of that consecration is thinking that we are above anybody else. It's easy for us to look and see it in the Israelite nation. It's easy for us to look and see it in the disciples. But now let's turn and look at ourselves and say, is there anyone that I have elevated myself above or that I think that I deserve more from God than, the, than another person? I don't deserve any gift from God. And yet he gives it to me freely and by his choice, and by his good wisdom, because he sees the end from the beginning. He sees the whole story. He knows what I can handle. He created me. He breathed the breath of life into my lungs. So he knows when I need his, uh, his glory to fall on me. He knows when I need his anointing, and he knows when somebody else needs it instead. And there's no part of me that can compare or be jealous or call out to God and say, this isn't enough. It's always enough. Isn't our God perfect? Isn't our God holy? Isn't he the one who created the stars and the moon? Isn't he the one who created people? Doesn't he know better than us? If we go back to that simple understanding of who God is and who I am, then I can be at peace with the people around me. When you know who your God is, when you can trust him completely, that he has your best interest in mind. And when you realize who you are, you are a sinner saved by God's grace. Everything that you have, every breath in your lung, every gift that you operate in is only because God gave it to you. There is a verse in Psalms that talks about the wickedness of men, and it talks about sinful men. It's Psalm 36.2, and it says this, He thinks too much of himself. He doesn't see his own sin and hate it. Psalm 36, 2. He thinks too much of himself. He doesn't see his own sin and hate it. Let's turn that around. It says she thinks so much of herself that she doesn't see her sin and hate it. When we get to a place where we're in a grave of, of craving, it's because we've thought too much of ourselves. We haven't seen our sin. Mm-hmm. 
We need to daily find a place of confession. That brings us back into the right balance of God and realizing who God is and who we are. If we think we are without sin, we have fooled ourselves. If we think that we are holy, we aren't looking very deep. If we think that we are perfect, we are deceived because daily we fall into attitudes. We fall into situations where we didn't love like Jesus could love, where we didn't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, where we were so busy with our lives that we didn't know what the mission that God had for us for this day was. We all fall short of God's glory. Who's elevated themselves to be like God? Which among us is like God? None of us are God. And so daily we need to confess that we fall short of the glory of God. And daily we need to come into that right standing and realize who we are and who God is. And that will release us from jealousy of someone else. That will release us for telling God, this isn't enough. The fact that I have running water is not enough, that I have electricity and a car and food to eat and a family around me and a church to go to and a job and shoes and internet, it's not enough, God, I want more. I would dare any of us to go and pray that prayer in front of someone in Africa. I would dare any of us to pray that prayer in front of someone who lives in Haiti We have more than enough. Why do we keep asking for more? Do we not realize all that God has done? It's God's choice. It's God's special favor or grace that rests upon us to do mighty things for Him in His timing. But if we keep asking for quail when God's already given us manna, His anger's going to burn against us. If we become like the disciples who, when Jesus is talking about his very death, the greatest moment in all of history, he reveals to him, to the disciples that sin is going to be obliterated. And their first response is, well, who's going to take over? I'm the greatest. Let's go back from these graves of craving. Let's wait our way out of this. Let's begin to consecrate ourselves. And instead of wanting more, let's begin to take off so many things that have come upon us. Let's consecrate ourselves. Let's cut off any ungodly attitude, any ungodly thing that has so easily become a part of our daily lives. There's one more time when the disciples begin to argue about who is the greatest. And this is, again, in the book of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 22, and it's at the Last Supper. They're at the Last Supper, and Jesus is talking very clearly about his death and what's about to happen. And Luke twenty two twenty four, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest or the least, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." As they're disputing over who's the greatest, 
Jesus is reminding them that the greatest is the one who serves. He's, and Jesus is the greatest, and yet he served. He is the name above every other name. And yet he washed the feet of the disciples. And yet he became a human in order to die for us. He says, be like that. Be like me. Be a servant, the youngest, the least, the child. That attitude, that stance, that humility is what God desires of us. Today we can choose to ask God for more, or we can begin to consecrate ourselves and begin to become less. And when we become less, that is when we become more. The Bible says to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up in His time. When we begin to think that I don't have enough, what God's given me is not enough, I'm not important enough, then we've forgotten who God is and who we are. We have enough. We need to live simply in the truth of who our great God is and who we are. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus as the greatest example, an example of someone who would come to earth to die on behalf of other people, on behalf of me, on behalf of everyone listening, on behalf of everyone who doesn't even care to listen to the gospel. You died even for them. You came for the sick, not just the healthy. God, you came for the sick, for those that couldn't see the light. You came for them. God, you came to seek and save the lost. You came to serve. You came to go underneath people that you had no business being underneath. And God, I pray that we would be like you. I pray that we would do the same. I pray that we would come underneath people that we have no business being underneath. I pray that we would serve people who don't deserve to be served. I pray that we would become like children and have faith to believe and and the confidence to say, this is enough. What you've done for me is enough. And every great gift that comes from you, I am grateful and blessed because of it. God, I pray that we would see those around us We would have no ounce of jealousy, but we would celebrate that, God, you have blessed our brothers and sisters, and we don't deserve to be pushed forward because we've spent more time with you. We don't deserve to be pushed to the front of the line because we've we've been years and years of serving you. No, the line is all the same, and as we become least, we will become greatest. As we celebrate those around us, God, we're celebrating you. Jesus, I pray we would see you and other people. We would see the breath you've breathed into each person, and we would serve people as we would serve you. God, I pray that you would change our cravings into consecration. Change our cravings into consecration, that we wouldn't be asking for more, but instead, God, we would be taking off the things that have so easily set into our hearts and lives, that we would become less. Change our cravings for consecration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.